Bannerman, we are here with another design and tactics chat. So this week we are going to be covering the five different game modes and some general strategies and tactics for the Starks and Lannisters on what to do in each of these modes. I'm not going to be covering neutral armies specifically just because of the diversity in there. As not to say there's not diversity in the Starks and Lannisters because you know an army led by Great John Umber is going to have drastically different tactics than one led by Brendan Tully the Blackfish one being a berserker force and the other being a defensive come-at-me-bro style army. But each of those factions does have some generic strategies that we can talk about, so that's going to be the focus here. There's going to be a lot to cover in this video. So, uh, video. <laughs> this is going to be a lot to cover in this podcast. So we're going to get right down into it. So you can follow along with the rulebook here, and we are going to talk about the game modes. We're going to talk about the setup for them, some general strategies and tactics for them, and then get into the army-specific ones. We're going to start with a Game of Thrones. Deployment for this one is short range on each side. Setup. Place one objective token in the center of the table. Each player then rolls a die, re-rolling any ties. Whoever rolls highest places one objective token anywhere on the battlefield at least 12 inches or long range from any deployment zone and at least 6 inches short range from any other objective token. Players will alternate placing objective tokens until their total 5 on the board. Objective tokens may not be placed on terrain pieces with the impassable keyword. So basically what that means is there's going to be one objective token in the center of the table, and then four more strewn across. Ideally, you're going to want to place two of them, uh, the two that you place, closer to your deployment zone, or your opponent's going to place them closer to theirs. So I guess consider that your first baseline strategy. Place tokens closer to yourself, because these are going to be how you win the game. Special rules. Before deployment, randomly draw one card from the objective deck and place it face up near each objective. That is the ability of that token for this game. A unit ending a move of any part of its tray over a token claims it. While touching the token, it controls that token. Each token may only be controlled by one unit at any time. If multiple units are touching the token, only the first one that contacted it counts as controlling it. If the unit controlling the token is destroyed in melee, the unit that destroyed it claims the token if they are touching it. If a unit moves off a token it is controlling for any reason, it stops controlling that token. And beginning on round 2, players will score one victory point for each token they control at the end of each round. So there's a lot of rules there to cover case scenarios, but basically this is area control, okay? You claim the token, you hold the token, in the round, you're going to get victory points for it. Victory points are how you win the game. Victory points are also how many you need to win the game is based on game size. Uh, before we get too much into this, though, also remember that throughout every game mode that you play, bar one, there is the victory through combat rule, which states that in addition to any methods listed in the game mode, a player always earns one victory point, when they destroy an enemy combat unit that costs at least one point. Units costing zero points do not grant victory points. In the event that a unit is destroyed by an effect generated by the owner, or an effect not controlled by any player, each of their opponents will earn one victory point, again with the exception of units costing zero points. So this means that, theoretically, um, you can win by just killing enemy combat units if they have enough to actually, you know, uh, grant you enough victory points. Also, it's noted that if an enemy ever has zero combat units remaining, they lose the game. So theoretically, if you're playing against someone that has spent all their points on non-combat characters and for whatever reason only brought in one combat unit, you'll probably win the game like that. But that's going to be more of a case of your opponent making a bad list than is anything else. Uh, it is possible to make a bad list if you don't balance your combat units with your non-combat units. Uh, again, that's going to be a really kind of, uh, I have to think, intentional setup by your opponent to, you know, run... 5, 6, 10 non-combat units, and then one combat unit. Any competent person should be able to look at that and go, holy crap, that's a terrible list. We're assuming that your opponents are somewhat competent, though. Alright, back to a Game of Thrones. So, 
About this game mode, as I said before, it is area control. Each of these five objective tokens here is going to be granted a special ability out of a deck of 10 cards. All these abilities are going to be super useful. Some factions are going to favor ones over the other. For example, there is one that states that uh, when you score victory points from it, one enemy unit suffers a panic test. While this is generically useful, the Lannisters are going to gain much more of a benefit out of this than the Starks would, for example, because they have so many tactics based around panic tests. Um, so that's something to note, is that that's a variable that you'll come across. There's ten cards in the deck, you're going to pick five of them every game, and you're never going to know, where, uh, know when they show up. So you might have one that's super useful for you, but sitting on your opponent's side of the battlefield. It might behoove you to go after that one. So some general strategies and tactics for this one. Thing to remember, this is an area control scenario. I know I keep saying that over and over again, but I've seen too many times that people just kind of ignore that. They'll move units off of the objectives to go and get in combat, and it doesn't really uh, give them any benefit to doing so. Yeah, you might wipe out a unit, but what does that matter in the long run? You are sitting on an objective that's going to grant you a point at the end of every round. Make the enemy come to you. So don't play overly aggressive in this scenario. When you uh, claim points, Sorry, when you claim actual objective tokens, stay on those points. For the Lannisters, uh, this is going to be a little easier for them because they are a defensive-based army with a lot of panic-inducing effects. Uh, so for Lannisters, because you have so many defensive options, you have Lannister guards, you have halberdiers, all of these guys love taking an area, controlling them, and just holding it down while you're scoring points. So those are going to be your units that are going to be your mainstays for this game mode. And they're going to really help you out a lot. The thing to remember is that, I know I'm just going to keep repeating this, you're a defensive army. Uh, you do not have the raw combat aggression of nearly any other faction, especially the Starks, who are super combat focused. What you want to do is get up to an objective as fast as you can, park on it, and then make the enemy come at you. You have cards like Wealth of the Rock, which is going to give you plus one to your defense saves. Um, you want to control the wealth area of the tactics board more than almost any other area to start restoring units to yourself. So, you know, you are probably the best faction that is uh, set up to make just a giant bulwark to go and just park an objective, hold it, and start scoring points. A big mistake that I see a lot of Lannister players doing is that they will, as I previously mentioned, get a little kill-crazy and bloodthirsty. There is no reason to go after a unit that is not sitting on another objective, unless you really, really want that objective. So you need to really put some strategy and you know, thought into this, that is that something worth going and pursuing? Because 9 out of 10 times, it's going to be more worth it for you to just sit there on a point and let the opponent deal with you. Uh, because, you're, again, your combat capabilities are pretty bad. So you're probably not going to kill the guy you're going after anyway, unless you're playing a super aggressive army like the Mountain or something, but... That's an outlier scenario. Um, you're, again, going to be better off if you just let the enemy come to you. Use your defensive capabilities. You've got tons of them. You've got halberdiers who are going to get to make an attack action when someone charges you. You've got Lannister guards who have the best defense stat in the game uh, for their point cost. You have all these options to just really set up and force engagements where you want them. So that's really going to be your predominant strategy. And the best bit of advice I can give you, as simple as it might sound, is don't go kill crazy, don't be aggressive. In this situation, you're going to want to reward yourself for just sitting back and being the giant tank faction that you are. Flipping over to the Stark side, however, um, I actually have a bit of the same advice. You want to take these points, and you don't want to go absolutely kill crazy, except for the fact that you have the abilities to do so. 
your biggest strong point in this game mode is actually going to be the, uh, the level of maneuverability and speed that the Starks have. You have cards like Swift Advance, which are going to give units uh, free maneuvers at the start of their activation. You're going to naturally want to take the maneuver area of the tactics board to give yourself um, extra speed. So what this allows you to do is set up an early game dominance of very quickly getting to points, the center point and the two near you, and just locking them down. Because now you're scoring three points around, whereas the opponent is going to be scoring two points around and forcing them to come after you. You're going to win the long game there. Uh, ideally as well, you can use your speed to capture a far point that maybe your opponent has not gone after or defended so well, and that's going to allow you to further, you know, claim things. Uh, another aspect that you have is that you have access to some cheap zero-cost units in the form of your Dire Wolves. Um, if you're playing Rob Stark, you're going to get Grey Wind for free. If you're playing Bran and Hodor, then you're going to get um, uh, Summer thrown in there as well. So that's going to give you two cheap units that are not going to be worth victory points, but can still go up and claim objectives. Uh, the direwolves can be exceptionally annoying, even though they are kind of glass cannon. But even if a direwolf parks an objective and holds it for one turn and gets you one victory point, that's a worthy sacrifice there to make. And the direwolves are some of the fastest units that you're going to have, so by all means, utilize those guys. In addition, you can play units like the Stark Outriders. You know, you've got your light cavalry guys who can get up there um, and take and control points. More so with the Outriders, you're also going to have your uh, Swift Retreat special abilities, so they can actually get out of fights if they ever get into an unfavorable situation. So, you have the extra maneuverability coming from there. So, when you're playing Starks, you're going to naturally want to get really aggressive, but I want you to focus on the other half of your army, which is your maneuverability and speed, because really in this scenario, that is what's going to help you more than just your raw kill capabilities. When you're playing against a lot of Lannisters, you're going to want to hit them from the flanks and hit them from the rear, because if they're playing smart, as I mentioned in their part of this little talk, they're going to want to just sit on points and force you to deal with them. Well, you deal with them by going in the flanks and maneuvering around to the rear and everything, because it might be worth it for you for a couple rounds, maybe give them some points, but use those rounds to position your guys you know, to their flanks, to their rears, so that you can actually get in there, force those minus two to their defense saves, force those minus two to their panic tests, and then clean up in the late game. So with Starks, you kind of have two strategies. One, you can do that alpha rush and really get up on those points. Or if the faction you're playing against, in this case again the Lancers, managed to get on a bunch of points, you can kind of force the late game and just move into getting some better positions to actually hit them with. Because if they are trying to avoid your positioning, that means they're moving off the points. If they're just sitting there, then, well... The term sitting duck exists for a reason. So those are some general thoughts about uh, a Game of Thrones game mode. Again, area control. So let's move on to the next one here, which is going to be a Clash of Kings. Clash of Kings is going to see players deploying long range from the table edge and flank edges, um, kind of in a box on either side of their ba uh, the battlefield. In addition to this, you're going to place one objective token in the center of the table and two more objective tokens long range from that one, kind of forming a line down the center of the table. Special rules. At the beginning of the game, each player selects two of their combat units to deploy. The rest are placed in reserve, being held off the battlefield. The army commander must be deployed if possible. If the commander is an NCU, one attachment must be declared to be their proxy on the battlefield. Beginning on round two, players may deploy units from their reserve. As its activation, that unit may be placed anywhere fully within long range of your table edge, or fully within short range of a flank edge that you control. And we'll define that more as we read the rules. When a unit is destroyed, it is moved to a player's reserves, allowing it to be redeployed later in the game. 
Characters that were in these units are permanently destroyed, replaced by normal models from that unit. If a unit is destroyed before it activated in the round, it may be deployed later in the round. The left and right objective tokens can be claimed to allow units to deploy in the flank edges of the battlefield. If you control one of these objective tokens, you may deploy units from your reserve on the opposite flank edge of that token. A unit ending a move of any part of its tray on a token claims it. While touching the token, it controls that token. If multiple units are touching the token, only the first one that contacted it counts as controlling it. Beginning on round two, a player scores two victory points for controlling the center objective and one victory point for each side objective they control at the end of each round. Destroying the enemy commander or their proxy grants two additional victory points. So a bit of a mouthful, but again, technical wording on a lot of these, but let me sum this up to you really quick. <laughs> this is your big combat scenario if you guys just want to kill each other. You destroy units, they'll respawn later in the uh, the game because uh, they go into your reserves. In addition to this, they're going to be um, objectives in the center of the battlefield and teach within 12 inches of that one that for controlling them grant you some victory points, but more importantly, when you redeploy those units, allow you to deploy them on the flank edges of the battlefield. In addition to this, there's a special rule where if you kill the army commander, then he's going to grant additional victory points. In most situations, this means that destroying the unit with the commander is going to grant you three victory points because it is going to be worth one via the victory through combat rule, and then two additional because of the special rule here about destroying the enemy commander. So, you know, I know I said a big mouthful there and everything, but really it breaks down to you're going to kill a bunch of guys, they're going to come back on the battlefield, and you're going to hopefully kill a bunch of guys after that, and, you know, uh, the winner of this one's really going to be just a big, you know, kind of just big brawl. So if you guys like the combat-based scenarios, this one's going to be your favorite one here. So general strategies for this one. Well, obviously you're going to have to deploy your commander out there, so the unit that he's placed in, it's going to super matter. Uh, you're going to be basically putting probably one of your most powerful guys out there and making him just a slightly bit vulnerable, but hey, your opponent's doing the same. So that's going to balance out. Big thing in this one is that it's going to get bloody really, really fast. So expect that, and don't put too much stock in any individual unit really lasting that long because this one's a combat-focused game, and these units are going to be dropping like flies. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because, as we mentioned the rules, they're going to respawn by going into your reserves. It might behoove you at times to be overly reckless with a unit because if it manages to take out another unit and then it gets destroyed, hell, yours is just going to respawn. This scenario here, and I keep saying the word scenario, these are called game modes, but scenario, uh, is going to favor combat heavy armies uh, in general. So therefore, if you're playing Starks and Lannisters, this is going to lean more toward the Starks or, say, a Lannister force that is playing the Mountain. Um, so that's just something to note here as well. If you're playing a defensive-based army or a like a Lannister panic list, you're still going to have a bunch of options here, namely targeting the enemy commander, doing some assassination runs, and things of that nature. Uh, but the combat-heavy armies are going to have a slight advantage on this one. And, you know, that's just what it comes down to when you're making your lists and everything. Uh, you can play it where you can tailor a list specifically to a game mode, but really you should be making kind of a balanced list that can um, sorry accommodate for a lot of the different game modes that you might be playing. Because you might have one that is super strong at taking and holding objectives, but it's going to lack a little bit in the combat side of things. Really, this game mode, uh, more than most of the others, favors adaptability. Uh, the commander that can uh, adapt to the situation on the battlefield and change their plans accordingly is the one that's going to come out on top here. 
to the point where I actually don't really want to talk about individual um, faction strategies with this game mode because I don't think that's really going to be as uh, beneficial as just mentioning uh, some general things. And again, it's going to come down to adaptability. The thing to expect on this one is that you're going to be able to hit guys on the flanks. The order in which you activate units is going to be super important on this one. There are so many variables for this one that the people that go into it with like, yeah, we're just going to go and slam into each other and kill each other. Oh yeah, you can absolutely do that. And that this mode is definitely going to favor that. But the person who actually takes a look at the overall, uh, the overall state of the game. Okay, if I attack this unit, it has not activated yet. That means it's going to be able to redeploy. If my opponent's allowed to redeploy this unit, then he controls this objective. It means that he can deploy this on the other side of the battlefield. Well, that's not good for me. If I stall out my activations, and if he uh, destroys this unit, then I can do the same, and it's going to come in the flank of a unit. These are all variables to really consider. I feel that if you want to learn about positioning and tactics in regards to mobility, this is probably the game mode that you're going to want to play more than any of the others, because this will really teach you that. So that's something interesting about this one. And really, it's... You know, I, I know I've, I've played this one up a little bit, talking about it as the kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, let's go fight each other one. But the more I actually sit here and think about it, the more this one can get really complex compared to a lot of the other modes. So, you know, Game of Thrones, yeah, okay, there's five objectives out there. I want to take those. Uh, Winds of Winter, yeah, I've got my hidden objectives here, uh, my hidden missions that I need to complete. Okay, I, I have a clear goal. This one here, despite the, the, uh, the clear goal being I need to wipe out the enemy, and that's how I'm going to score victory points, the way you have to go about doing that, noting that you have to kind of you know gauge the balance between your guys getting destroyed and destroying the enemy, it does actually set up a huge amount of variables here. So I actually feel this game mode is going to surprise a lot of people because they're going to go, yeah, well, this is the one we're just going to go and kill each other. And they're going to find, you know, okay, my positioning, my tactics card resources my non-combat guys, and how I'm actually influencing the tactics board. These are all super important here. Basically, it's one of those factors that if you strip away a lot of the kind of a guiding hand about how I win this game, and you open the variables up to allowing people to choose their own method to win, then all of a sudden, you know, the strategies are going to come out, the tactics are going to come out, and I really feel that the person who is better at positioning is going to dominate this game mode. So that might have been a lot of incohesive rambling now that I think about it, but <laughs> hopefully you gleaned a little bit of what I was saying when talking about this mode. Don't let it fool you, um, and if you want to get some good practice with battlefield positioning, play it. It's super cool. <laughs> Moving on, we have a Storm of Swords, probably the most unique game mode. This one is going to make use of castle walls. Deployment uh, for the Defender is going to be long range from their table edge, and the attacker, it's going to be 18 inches from their table edge. So before the game begins, uh, each player is going to roll a die, re-rolling ties. Whoever rolls highest chooses whether they'll be the attacker or the defender. And before places, placing terrain pieces, you're going to place three castle walls three inches from the defender's table edge, with the first being centered to their deployment zone and the remaining two four inches away on either side. Note that castle walls are not terrain pieces. Terrain is not placed as normal. Instead, the defender places up to four terrain pieces they're choosing anywhere further than short range from their deployment zone and any other terrain piece. So in this, this is your castle siege scenario, and that's why the setup is like it is. You're going to have three big castle walls that have their own HP. 
uh, that the defender is going to be trying to, uh, well, defend, and the attacker is going to try to destroy. And this is covered by the special rules, which are as follows. The attacker wins via normal victory point accumulation. The defender does not gain victory points, but automatically wins at the end of round 6. At the beginning of the game, before deployment, each player should draw three cards at random from their respective Siege strategy decks. And these decks are uh, small decks that contain six cards each, one for the attacker, one for the defender, and you're going to get three of those random cards each game. So they can do different things, such as the defender uh, gaining extra re uh, sorry, reinforcements as the game goes on, being able to make surprise attacks, being able to shut down some of the attacker's effects. The attacker has things like catapult barrages or uh, strategies that are going to benefit them the longer the game goes on. So that's the type of things you're going to see in there. Um, at the start of the round, the attacker may redeploy any friendly combat units that were previously destroyed, placing them anywhere in their deployment zone. Characters do not redeploy and are instead permanently destroyed, replaced by a generic model from the unit they were in, if applicable. The defender does not begin with all combat units in play. They must select half of their total combat units, rounded up, to begin in reserve. The rest are deployed as normal. So if you have five units in your army, uh, you're going to pick half of them, aka in this case three, and they're going to go in your reserve, and you'll deploy two at the start of the game. Beginning on round three, the defender may deploy any unit from reserve fully within short range of any flank table edge. This is done at the start of the unit's activation and is not their action for the turn. So this means that those guys that you put in reserve, they're going to start coming in from the flank board edges. This is going to be different though because your guys are actually finite, whereas the attackers just straight up respawn. So the attacker actually has an unlimited number of combat units that they can just keep hurling at you uh, until the end of the game. Because again, noting here that the only way that the defender wins is they survive the assault until the end of round 6. Continuing, uh, castle walls may be charged and attacked with melee attacks, and only melee attacks, as if they were enemy units. They do not get defense saves, never make morale tests, and award 5 victory points when destroyed, but noting that they are not removed. Uh, each of the castle walls also has a stat card with them that basically they've got one defensive capability which is uh, resilient which is they only suffer a wound for every two hits and they've got six wounds each. So theoretically you have to deal them 12 wounds to take them out. That's not exactly true though because if you only deal them for example with an attack three wounds the resilience effect will cause them to take one because they basically two for one on that and then the last one's just kind of wasted. So. It's sort of like they've got 12 wounds, but not quite. Just, again, read the card, it'll explain it to you. Uh, enemies may not move and or deploy for any reason behind the castle walls. Now this, theoretically, is covered by the fact that the castle walls are placed 3 inches from the uh, table edge, so you couldn't fit a unit back there anyway, but that unit, uh, sorry, that rule exists there just for the sake of those odd case scenarios. Uh, each non-destroyed castle wall segment may be activated just like a combat unit. The only action available to it is to use the arrow's ranged attack action listed on its stat card. Uh, so as I said earlier, the defender is going to start with half their units in reserve. In this situation here, theoretically uh, you can look at it as the defender has three extra combat units to activate every round via the three castle wall segments. They're not immensely powerful, but they do get to show, uh, shoot some extra arrows out there, and they do have a tar and pitch ability, so if units are engaged with them, they start dealing automatic wounds. So that's a fun little thing they're going as well. Uh, so while the defender does have a finite amount of guys, they technically get three extra activations in the round, and that's actually, to me, the biggest asset of the castle walls um, versus anything else they give. 
Also noting here that the castle walls, if they're destroyed, they're five victory points each. In your standard games, uh, if you destroy two of these, that means the uh, attacker is probably one. Uh, in some lower point games, they really only have to take down one castle wall section and a couple combat units, and they'll also win like that. Larger size scales up from there, but that's to accommodate, you know, for the larger, no, sorry, the having more combat units on either side. Uh, if you're playing Starks, it is going to depend on the commander you are choosing whether you want to be the attacker or the defender. In most situations, you're going to want to be the attacker because, as we previously talked about, the Starks are an aggressive army. The exception to this would be if you're playing someone like Brendan Tully loves being the defender in this situation because he loves making the enemy come to you. He likes outlasting the enemy. Tullys are all about that. So in that case, you probably want to choose to be the defender. If you're choosing Eddard as well, Eddard is not a bad option to be a defender here because he has a lot of um, restorative effects. You're going to get Eddard's Honor Guard, which you're probably running, which is going to give you a big tanky unit as well. So you have those options to defend. If you're playing a guy like Great John Umber, then you're going to want to be on the offense. And if you're playing someone like Rob Stark, Rob, uh, you know, actually he can go either way in this situation because having guys deploy in the flanks combined with Rob's maneuverability, that's going to allow you to get some really nasty plays on the attackers. Uh, and if you're an attacker, you're going to have the speed to really get that alpha strike in there and start hurting the opponent early on. The problem is that, again, you're going to have guys coming in from the flank, so you're going to have to kind of worry about that. Uh, Roderick Cassil in this case, you're going to want to go on the defense as well because you have a lot of effects that are going to punish the opponent for attacking you. And, um, well, he has to say he has some offensive-based effects as well, but I would probably still choose Defender if I'm playing as uh, Roderick. Howland Reed <laughs> with his uh, non-combat version. Um, in that situation, I would actually go Defender because he's all about debuffing the enemy, and he synergizes really well with a lot of the, uh, the defensive siege tactics cards, so you can really kind of cripple a unit and shut it down. And that's really what you want to do is do any of those stall tactics. For Lannisters... With rare exception, you are probably going to want to be the defender in this scenario. The Mountain being the one that comes to mind, or even Tywin as well. He would make a good attacker. But, mm, actually I take that back. Tywin's going to make a better defender because he's throwing out weakened with most of his effects. And that's going to directly help you with defense. So Lannisters, uh, with Storm Swords, probably want to be on the defense. If you are playing Starks, you might want to choose to be the defender if you're playing against Lannisters because... They don't have a lot of great combat potential, so this is going to help you in that situation there as well. Unless they're playing in, uh, as the mountain, the mountain you're going to want to make <laughs> you're going to want to make them the defender, which is kind of funny. They're going to have a big combat edge, and frankly, if they're coming in the flanks, that's really going to hurt you as well. But it's way better than giving them the offense. So for this one here, um, again going back to Lannisters, uh, choose defender where possible. A lot of the defender siege tactics cards are going to give you some extra defensive buffs. They're going to give you a little bit of extra combat oomph, which you're going to need to outlast these guys. But really the biggest bit of advice I can give you with the Lannisters is that, um, first off, win the roll and be the defender. See? Really that easy. Just roll well, win game. Uh, but if you don't and you're forced on the offense, then all is not lost because you are going to get the respawning combat units and you're going to be able to kind of just meat grinder your way through. If you're running Mountainsmen, they're a fantastic choice for this. Halberdiers, this is one of the things about halberdiers in general that a lot of people I see making this, I'm going to call this a mistake. They ignore the fact that the halberdiers have seven attacks, don't lose any of those dice until they get to the last rank, and have Sundering built in. Sundering is really huge, and the halberdiers actually have a really good amount of offensive potential, 
but people tend to um, not want to charge with them because they read that set for charge ability and they go, okay, well, I just want to hang back. If you're playing the attacker in a Storm of Swords, you don't have that option. But you also have a unit that rolls seven attack dice and rerolls on the charge and has Sundering. Uh, don't ignore that, because that's really strong, actually, when you're dealing some damage to guys. Um, not against the castle walls, but anything standing in front of them. Uh, so in this situation here, again, it's going to really come down to which commander you're playing. If you're playing as Tywin, then you really hope you get uh, defense because all of his weakened effects are just going to really help you out there. If you're playing the Mountain, you're going to want to get offense because, you know, charging is fun and killing guys is really cool too. In the situation where you're playing the Mountain and you get uh, put on defense, it's again not the end of the world because the Mountain is all about gaining bonuses when you charge. In this specific game mode, you're going to deploy on their flanks. And it's a bad situation usually when a person gets charged on the flanks. It is doubly so if you have a big unit of mountainsmen of Critical Blow and Vicious and the mountains really nasty tactics cards coming into play, such as Overrun, uh, which says that when you destroy an enemy unit, uh, instead of doing a maneuver, you get to make a free charge. So in that situation, if you hold your tactics cards right, you can just plow through the attackers. And the thing is, yeah, the attackers do respawn, but they respawn re uh, in their deployment zone. So on average, it's going to take them a round or two to actually kind of get back up in the fight. And again, you only have to survive till the end of round six. I know it seems like this impossible like goal way off in the distance, but those six rounds are going to go by really fast if you know what you're doing. And again, playing in, uh, with your Siege Tactics cards, those are an invaluable resource. They are once-per-game use, but they can really swing the tides of battle. So pay attention to those and you know, just don't make mistakes when playing them, I guess is good advice. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Next game mode we have here is going to be a Feast for Crows. It's going to be standard deployment of long range for each side. Set up, in addition to all other terrain, two corpse piles must be placed on the battlefield. These corpse piles must be placed before any other terrain and are in addition to the usual amounts placed. Special rules. Each time a unit activates while within short range or corpse pile, it must make a morale test. Each time a unit fails a morale test, place one victory point token on that unit. When a unit is destroyed, Claim additional victory points equal to the tokens on it. Each time an infantry unit is destroyed, the opponent places one corpse pile terrain piece within short range of the destroyed unit if one is available. This corpse pile may not overlap other terrain pieces when it is placed. This is your uh, Mounds of the Dead game mode here. And so Lannisters, when I was talking to you earlier about the uh, Clash of Kings game mode being really aggressive based and that kind of hurting you a little bit, we're going to flip that right over and go, A Feast for Crows is your jam. Did I really just say that? I did. Okay. <laughs> because this one here is all about making the enemy take morale test, which, you know, panic test are a form of morale test. Please do not forget that, by the way. Panic tests are a subset of morale tests. Each time a unit fails one of those for any reason, they become worth stacking victory points. Lannisters have a ton of options to actually stack additional points on, uh, on enemies, uh, during this game mode because of the additional panic tests that they can cause. Now, Stark's all is not lost here because you guys have a really good morale stat, which means that you guys have ways to counter all this. And, um, you know, you guys are going to be way more resilient about getting those extra victory point tokens than the Lannisters. But, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's go back and talk about some general strategies here. Uh, so Corpse Piles, for those who are unaware, have the horrific keyword, which is units 
that are within short range of them suffer minus one to morale test rolls. That does not stack, by the way, so if you're within, you're basically, you're either within range of a corpse pile or you're not within range of a corpse pile and therefore suffer the penalty or you don't. It doesn't stack up to, you know, any insane numbers. It says that in the terrain pieces, but also the general rules state that if you, you know, effects of the same name don't stack, so tons of things to cover there. Uh, initial placement for the corpse piles is going to be kind of key because odds are you're going to place one and then your opponent's going to place one and in fact there's no really odds about it that's how it's going to work uh so you've got to choose where you want to place those corpse piles and that initial battlefield position is actually fairly important to to note if you're playing against starks or against a very mobile army you don't really want to place a corpse pile near their deployment zone because odds are they're not going to stay there very long Placing it kind of near the center of the battlefield or something around there is going to be your better play. In addition, you can kind of manipulate slightly uh, where your opponent deploys if you start stacking corpse piles on like one side of the table. For example, if your opponent places first and they place theirs on the far left flank, well, you now have an option here. Do you want to place yours on the uh, far right flank and make the entire board kind of this negative zone? Or do you want to place one uh, right near where they place theirs and that way you have a side of the battlefield that you both probably want to avoid So there's some you know, there's some thought about where you want to place it um, And it depends on the army you're playing if you're playing a morale heavy like Stark army uh, You know I'm getting into tactics here again. Okay, you know what? Let's just go into the specifics here if you're playing the Starks uh, You are going to have a higher baseline morale than a lot of other armies So you can kind of you know bite the bullet as it is and spread the corpse piles across the battlefield because if you're playing against Lannisters they're probably not going to have as good morale as you and some other armies in general are not going to have as good as morale as you are going to have. You also have mitigation means via having a large access to stalwart characters and then also direwolf's fervor which fervor, fever, whatever, uh, which is a tactics card that's going to give you bonuses to morale tests. So you have tools to mitigate all this so you can kind of just stomp on through the dead there and you're not going to care too much. Um, noting that Lannisters are going to have effects, they're going to give you negatives, but you're just going to have to deal with that. Actually, the scariest army to play against uh, in this game mode is going to be a Bolton-led... Well, a Bolton-led neutral force would be pretty bad, but frankly, a Bolton-led Lannister force, where they have either Roos or Ramsay at the helm, that's probably going to be a really tough opponent to deal with on this game mode, because their tactics cards in general are going to be causing panic tests, um, sorry, the generic Lannister cards are going to cause a lot of panic tests, but then you're going to compound that by the fact that you have Roos or Ramsey who are going to be dealing out panic tokens, forcing you to re-roll those tests, and also causing additional negatives as well. So that is probably going to be the most annoying opponent to play against when this game mode does come up. But again, all is not lost. You have tons of ways to mitigate that, and remember that you still have your combat capabilities, so... The thing to understand, your maneuverability. Your maneuverability is really going to come into key here. If you have a unit that, for whatever reason, has been stacking victory points on it because it just keeps failing tests, well, you've got a bunch of cards that can actually pull them back out of the fight. And this is another uh, general tip, but really goes well with the Starks. Remember to retreat, okay? it's There's no shame in doing that, okay? If a unit has acquired a couple of uh, victory point tokens on it, and if it gets destroyed, it's worth three victory points, Pull it out of combat, even if you have to spend a round to do so, and then you spend a couple rounds healing them up, or even just getting them out of combat for the rest of the game. Yeah, they might be running away, but it's not handing victory points to the opponent. 
So one of the biggest um, issues I see with a lot of newer Stark players is that they really want to focus on combat. And yeah, I get it. Like, combat's fun. You're playing great John Umber. You want to go and kill a bunch of guys. But you have so many positioning and mobility uh, cards, even if you're not playing Rob. Now, Rob is the king of that. But even if you're not playing Rob, your generic tactics cards are going to give you so many options to just reposition yourself and get out of nasty situations. And you really need to take advantage of those. And I will tell you that the retreat action is going to be one that... Uh, players are going to need to master if they're playing this game mode because it's going to come important. You're going to be able to retreat back. You know, corpse piles are rough. They can slow down the opponents. But again, you want to get your high-value targets just out of the fight. If a unit's nearly destroyed and it's sitting there and stacking just these um, these victory point tokens, you know, two, three, four, you lose that unit. You've given half the game to your opponent. Don't do that. Come on, it's not worth it. Alright, let's flip to Lannisters. I know you're looking at this game mode here and you're going like, <laughs> this is awesome. I get to cause all these panic effects and just wreck face. Well, that's that's kind of true. You have a lot of tools that are going to make this insanely frustrating for an opponent. Uh, so you're going to get to capitalize on a lot of that. You're going to, but the thing to remember is that your units do not have a good morale stat at all. The Lannister average is a 7, and in this game mode, you're going to get dropped down to an 8, which means on average rolls, which the average of 2d6 is a 7, means you're going to start failing those tests. That's pretty bad, because that means you're going to start accumulating victory points on your own units. Uh, which is kind of mitigate a little bit if you're running guard captains, but then again, that's tailoring a list specifically to a game mode, and that's not something that um, you really should be doing. Now, tournaments work a little bit different, but you know what? That's an entirely different talk for another day, so we'll get into that later. The important thing to remember here is that your morale stat's not that great, so while you have a lot of options to actually cause panic tests and start accumulating victory points on enemy units, you also are subject to that as well because your own base morale is kind of bad. In this game mode, if I'm playing as, uh, if I'm playing as Lannisters, usually you'll want to target a specific unit and start stacking those uh, victory points on a specific unit. You can spread them out a bit, but your combat capabilities are not great, so ideally what I'd like to do is when a unit is nearly destroyed, or about halfway to destroyed, that's when you really want to start hitting them hard with all of your uh, panic check effects. You know, Hear Me Roar, um, not Fealty to the Crown, uh, Paid Mutiny. All those effects that are going to cause morale tests to really start stacking those victory points on there because if you stack, again, three to four victory points on a unit, you'll get those points, you'll get another victory point from victory through combat, and then boom, already you have half the points you need to win the game just by taking out one or two key targets. And the Lannisters don't have the raw combat capabilities of other factions. I know I keep harping on this and saying it over and over again, but really guys, basics need to be reinforced constantly. Uh, so in this game mode, whereas if you're playing an army like Starks, they can afford to kind of go and just start wiping out units because they've got the combat capabilities to do so. With Lannisters, by and by, you're not going to have that luxury. So you're going to have to play a little bit more tactical here. You're going to, again, I think the best play is to pick a unit that you think that you can probably kill and just start stacking those negatives on it when the time arises. You need to know when to strike. Uh, and, of course, it's going to be based on Commander. If you have the, uh, <laughs> if you have Tywin NCU with his um, Reigns of Castamere ability, that kind of is a thematic benefit to me here. You're just going to really hit that unit with Vulnerable and Panic. The Weekend is a plus, but not really relevant here. Shut off any abilities it has. It's probably going to be near a corpse pile, so that's when you really hit them hard. 
So surgical precision when you're playing as the Lannisters. Uh, if you are going to be one of those players that brings Roos or Ramsey into the fight, then doubly so for you. If you're bringing Ramsey, he's got a lot of combat capabilities to force units to fail morale tests, such as giving Vicious out left and right and expending panic tokens to give you combat bonuses. If you're playing Roos, Roos just hands out panic tokens left and right when he starts doing things on the battlefield, or sorry, the tactics board. So he is he loves this game mode. Regardless if you're playing Starks or you're playing Lannisters, if you have Roos at the helm, this is this is his kingdom. The kingdom of just corpse piles as far as the eye can see. Uh, so, you know, that's something to consider there as well. But again, that's talking specifically about the neutral units or some dipping there, and I said I wasn't going to get too much into that. So those are some general strategies for A Feast for Crows. Which is going to bring us to our final game mode here, The Winds of Winter. I have to say that this is probably my favorite one, just for the sheer diversity that brings on the battlefield. Alright, setup for this is going to be short range on either side. And setup, you're going to place one objective token in the center of the table. Each player then rolls a die, re-rolling ties. Whoever rolls highest will place one objective token anywhere on the battlefield, at least 12 inches, aka long range from any deployment zone, and at least 6 inches short range from any other objective token. Players will alternate placing objective tokens to their total 5 on the board. Objective tokens may not be placed on terrain pieces with the impassable keyword. Alright, so... Uh, you guys remember that because it's the same setup that we did for a Game of Thrones. The important distinction here, though, is that these objective tokens, first off, don't get any cards associated with them, so they don't have any powers. And two, they don't actually do anything for you unless they specifically state they do. I'm sorry, that really should have been covered under special rules here, under that section, so let me read that for you before we continue on. Spe uh, sorry, special rules. The victory through combat rules are ignored for this game mode meaning that units do not grant additional victory points when they are destroyed. At the beginning of the game, before deployment, each player draws two secret mission cards. Each secret mission card grants victory points for completing it and lists when these points are scored. Note that objective tokens are only relevant when they specifically interact with secret mission cards. Secret missions cannot be scored until the beginning of round two. At the end of each round, each player may discard one secret mission card. They will then draw until they have two secret mission cards. Discarded secret mission cards are kept face down, hidden from all players. Beginning on round two, draw one secret mission card and reveal it to all players at the start of each round. This is known as the open mission. Until the end of the round, any player may score this mission and may score it multiple times if applicable. Uh, there's a period there. <laughs> Discard this secret mission at the end of the round. All right. So in this game mode, you're going to have two secret missions that can range from anywhere from destroying the enemy commander, getting your guys uh, across the battlefield, controlling different objectives, uh, killing units that killed your own guys, and each of these cards is worth a variable amount of victory points. The deck is comprised of 20 different secret mission cards, so you kind of have a rough idea of what they're going to be based on what you have, what your opponent has played, and the open mission. The open mission being a secret mission that is revealed at the start of the round that you can uh, score potentially multiple times around. For example, there's one a secret mission that says you reveal it, and then every time you successfully charge this round, you get a victory point. That's a really cool one when it comes up as the open mission, because now everyone's just trying to get as many charges as they can. Um, but the important thing to note about this game mode is that you're going to have your own two secret missions, and your opponent's going to have two that they're trying to accomplish. So this one is going to kind of be a big bluffing game. And I actually know that Eric, this is his favorite game mode because of that bluffing aspect. And I enjoy it as well. Huh. 
I actually said earlier this is my favorite game mode as well. That means that both of the designers agree on something here. Ew, that's gross. I'm agreeing with Eric. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, he's a pretty good guy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so in this game mode here, it's really going to be a variable condition on the battlefield. Um, whereas your objectives are going to really strongly determine your overall strategy. Some objectives when you, uh, sorry, secret missions. When you draw your secret missions, some of them are going to favor your army, some of them are not really going to favor your army, and those are the ones you're probably going to want to pitch and discard. For example, if the Lannisters draw the one that says, oh, you gain bonus victory points every time you charge, and you're playing a Jamie Lannister counterattack heavy Lannister guard list, well, you probably don't want that card. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not going to favor you too, as much as if you're playing, you know, the Mountain, who is, I gain a bunch of bonuses when I charge. Hooray, good for me. The other thing to note, though, is that, kind of going against what I just said to a small degree, don't shoehorn yourself into thinking that you have limited strategies. If you draw the card that says, hey, I gain a bunch of victory points every time I charge, then play off of it. I mean, you're going to have to gauge whether the risk is, wor is worth the reward. In some cases, you're going to draw a mission that is just completely counterintuitive to your army, um, and it might not work, in which case, you know, maybe pitch and draw something else. But usually most of the missions you're going to be able to work around. You just kind of have to be a little bit sneaky about it, because there's ones that, you know, claiming certain zones of the tactics board will grant you those. So if you're playing, you know, a, uh, an NCU heavy Lannister list, for example, you've got options there to, you know, really claim things. The big thing about this mode, though, is that I think a good player will know when to keep their secret missions and when to pitch them for better ones. The better player, though, is going to pay attention to what their opponent is doing and kind of work to counter those while completing their own missions. The best player is going to see all of the things I just mentioned and start bluffing their opponent as to what they're actually trying to do. Uh, as I mentioned just a second ago, there are a few cards that are going to grant you victory points for claiming certain zones of the tactics board. So if you see an opponent that seems to be claiming zones that don't really grant them an immediate benefit, you can kind of wager they probably have one of these cards that's going to grant them additional points for claiming multiple zones. For example, there's one where if you claim the crown and the tactic zone. So an opponent claims a tactic zone, but they don't usually do that. Like say they're playing, you know, Darks and they really want to claim the maneuver combat zone, you might have an idea that they're probably going to try to claim crown next, so you might want to block them off there. I mean, again, it's not like any of the zones of the tactics board are bad, so you can claim those. Uh, that gets really funny when those things are drawn as the open mission, because then it becomes a bit of a scramble here to uh, who is going to claim that one first. And on that topic as well, if an open mission is drawn, it can be claimed by multiple players, but sometimes that is not physically possible such as the situation I just mentioned where it says you gain victory points for claiming two specific tactic zones. In that case, you might want to let your opponent have it if you see they're going after it, and then claim you know, combat bonuses elsewhere. And by that I mean, okay, they're going to waste their activations early in the round trying to claim the tactic zones. Well, maybe punish them for that. You know, It's standard gameplay 101 here. If your opponent's claiming areas of the tactics board, they're not activating combat units. Yeah, with exception, I know. But So use that leverage to claim battlefield supremacy. Um, so tactics for each army here. This is another one of those game modes that unfortunately the in general army tactics are going to be such in flux based on what you draw uh, as far as the secret missions go. That's really hard to give advice here. Uh, for Starks, there are a decent amount of combat options in the secret missions that are going to grant you bonuses for destroying units that have attacked you, for getting successful charges off, 
and there are going to be ones that are based around battlefield positioning. So, for example, there is another one that is going to grant you a victory point for each objective you control at the end of the round.